So in just a moment, we'll continue our series making space or creating space for others. But I want to just um, pause for a second and just I kind of share something with you. I sent an email out this week, and many of you received it. Uh, if you didn't, please fill out one of those cards that has your information on it and put your email address on there, legibly. And um, when we send out church-wide emails, you will get them as well. Some of you fill those out, and no one can read anything you write. So uh -huh. we just got to get a little better at our penmanship. But... But we sent an announcement. We want to make sure you're aware of it. Um, Pastor Chase, uh, just a couple weeks ago, he and I met, and um, he has turned in his resignation and will be moving on at the end of this month. And so we want to pray for him. But on November 28th, uh, we'll celebrate the time we've had with him and say thank you. And um, he's just kind of exploring what God may have next for him. Uh, if you have more questions about that, we can, we can talk about it. But we just want to celebrate him and the work he's done with our praise team and our youth. And so on the 28th, following the service, uh, there'll be cake and punch, and um, you'll just get to say thank you. So hope you'll be a part of that as well. Um, but it made me think about, as we talk about him and how we've always tried to make space for people, that, that we want to make space where people feel like they are welcomed and invited and where they are matters. And so I was thinking about how coffee shops do that really well. Here's what I mean. Have you noticed how when you go to a coffee shop, um, when you order, at pretty much all of them, they ask for your name? And they say, oh, well, Bill, it's nice to meet you. We're so glad you're here today. And then when they have your order ready, they go, hey, Bill, this is for you. And so you come and get your coffee. And then you go sit down. Have you noticed they create comfortable space? They want seats that make you want to stay. Not too long, but long enough that you're there that you might buy a second cup of coffee. And in fact, some of these places want you to feel so welcome, they leave out newspapers. And I know some of you don't know what those are. Um, but they then think of it this way. They give you the Wi-Fi password. Because um, they want you to feel like it's a welcome space for you. But it's not just coffee shops like that, right? They want an environment where you feel welcome and you come back. But have you been to someone's house where they did that for you? That when you went, you felt like you were invited back? My, my best friend growing up, his name was Pete, and his parents, Ron and Diane, um, I spent a ton of time at their house. And every time I went, I felt like I was welcome. In fact, Ron and Diane are the ones who taught me how to ski. Um, Ron and Dan took me on family trips. I was there all the time. They would purposely, because they found out I really liked when on Sunday they would, she'd make lunch and she made the best fried potatoes and steak. And so she would make that when she knew I was coming. It was always one of my favorites to go there. Um, they actually quit buying Twinkies because of me. I ate an entire box one weekend at their house and she thought it was her son. And so she quit buying Twinkies. And that was the end of Twinkies in their house. I haven't had one since. Um, eat a whole box of Twinkies and then ask me about wanting to have more of them. Right? But they made me feel welcome. But they and many others did the same thing. But every once in a while, you go to someone's house and you would not feel welcome. Whether it was just the environment, the tension among relationships or whatever, but you just didn't feel you're welcome. 
One of the funniest ones for me, I thought this is like a horror story for parents that say this out loud, was my first like, daycare I went to. It was at someone's house. She was kind of mean to me and my brother. Um, I didn't have any of those siblings yet, and, and I was scared to tell my mom. And so when I finally told my mom, it was as we were leaving there, my mom goes, well, if you had told me a long time ago, you'd never had to go back. It's like, oh, <laughs> good to know. I, mean, I was only like three or four, so, you know, there you go. Um, but when you feel unwelcome, you sense it, you feel it, you know it. And so our hope is that the church becomes the place, but more than just the place, the people, in which you feel welcome, in which we make space. And so here's what we mean by making space, right? We don't want people to consume religion like a commodity. The goal is not for you to consume stuff like, right, like, oh, music was good, check, uh, message, eh, we can, okay, right? Like, we don't just consume it like you would, you know, rate a movie or give a review on Google or TripAdvisor. The goal is that you would feel welcome. You would believe this is a place that you can come to know Jesus. In fact, that you could wrestle with your questions and your doubts. That's the kind of thing we mean by make space. And so this series, we've been talking about a few different things. We started with the idea that we want to focus on Jesus because we think that he matters above all things, and that becomes the most important thing. We then talked about how we really do want to prioritize young people because if we don't reach the next generation and the next generation, then there is no generation left. That's kind of what happens. We talked about how one of the things that should be a hallmark of the church is empathy. We should empathize with one another, what we're going through, and that should be real. And then last week, Chase shared about how we want to be able to have keychain leadership where we pass on to the next generation roles of leadership, and we empower people, and we mentor people, and we disciple people, and we do that well, and we're always looking for who is the next person I can hand a key to. But today, we're talking about the idea of a warm community. What I mean by warm is this, right? We don't want to be a church that has great programs or really good music or even good teaching um, and whatever else if we're not warm. And what I mean by warm is this. We want to be a church that feels like home, is safe for questions and doubts, and is authentic in who we are. Right? In fact, we even use some values that, to try to describe how we think that should look. In fact, they're on the wall behind me, but intentional growth or extreme generosity or extravagant love or authentic relationships. We think those things should be descriptors that describe the life of this particular church, and we hope really the life of every church. But we want people to feel like they are part of a church in which they feel drawn in and they are welcomed and they matter. You go, what do you what do you mean by they matter? That's a good question, right? Well, here's what, how I would define that, that you are loved by God and you're loved by us. Now, here's a couple of things that love isn't, because I think that's sometimes hard for people, right? Um, if we love and we're a warm community, it doesn't mean we can solve one another's problems. Right? We, we might be able to help, but we can't, we can't solve your problems together. I mean, we might have collective wisdom, but sometimes our problems are just, we can't solve them, but we can be there in the midst of them. Um, it doesn't mean everyone gets to sing on the platform, Thankfully, that's a good thing, because if you heard me singing, you would be sad. Um, ask my wife. It's not good. My kids, Dad, please stop. So um, we don't want that. But we do believe that we want to make this a space in which people can come to know that Jesus died for them, that he loves them. And we want to make that abundantly clear. 
Right, so here's how I would describe this idea. Sometimes love says, don't do something. Sometimes love just listens. But warmth always creates space for love to be embraced. Love creates space for, for people. And so if we're going to be a warm church, we create space for people to wrestle and know and wonder. Right? Wonder is one of those gifts, actually, I think God gives us to wrestle with what's going on around us and go, I wonder if God is real, if he's at work. I wonder if Jesus died for the sake of others. I wonder if, like if you've ever never wrestled those questions, I'm impressed by you, but I have wrestled with all of those things at some point, and you probably have as well. But here's what we'll say. Um, I, sometimes in life, in the middle of those kinds of things or other things, we feel lost or alone. And we want the church to be opposite of that. And so here's my question for you, and it's a serious question. Right? When is a time you have felt lost or alone? Now think about it. Like, remember it. Reflect on it. Picture it in your mind. Um, how did you feel? Were you tired or scared or emotional? Um, remember that feeling as we kind of go back and look at a text from Luke chapter 2, and it's actually a text in which Jesus is lost, or at least to his parents he seems lost. And here's what Luke records from Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I feel like me, you have several thoughts that kind of jumped into your head as you read that or heard that, right? The first one is this. Um, most of the stories in the Bible, Jesus is either a baby or a grown man, and there's not much in between. In fact, this is the only text we have in which he is neither one of those two things. In this text, he's a preteen. I've got one of those at my house. It's an interesting time of life. Bodies are starting to change. Voices are starting to change. Attitudes definitely increasing. Um, but he wasn't just a preteen in that culture at the age of 12. What he also was is he was right before, this would have been right before he turned 13. And in that culture, in that day, at 13, you were considered a man. So Jesus goes to the temple on the last time. It was pretty significant because this is right before he would be considered an adult. And so I was thinking about this story, and I can't help but think about um, Mary and Joseph. 
right? I don't know about you, but maybe they cross your mind as well. Um, they weren't bad parents, right? Because at first glance, you're like, you didn't know where your kid was for three days? You're not good. And you waited a whole day and had no idea where he was? He's 12. Do you know what Jerusalem would have been like during festival time? It would have been roughly probably 150 to 200,000 people in this town in an ancient world. People were everywhere. There would have been pickpockets and looters and criminals. And you had a 12-year-old running loose. What kind of mom and dad are you? But in that day, it was not uncommon that you would have traveled in groups, large groups. In fact, what would often happen is women would kind of head off early because they probably did most of the work, let's be honest. And then the guys would fall behind. And so they would meet up in the evening at some campsite predetermined, and they would spend the night there together. And so kids would bounce back and forth from group to group. So Mary probably assumed Jesus was with Joseph, and Joseph assumed he was with Mary. It's pre-cell phone, so I'm not surprised that this would happen. But one thing that jumped out to me is, can you imagine being so comfortable with your community in which you live that you didn't even care where your kid was throughout the day because you weren't worried about him at all? It's pretty awesome. Right? This is why we talk about wanting to be a warm community of faith. It's why I trust my kids, not just to Pastor Holly, but to other people every week here, because I want people to invest in my kids, and I hope you want the same for yours. Right? We want to be the kind of safe community where people can grow. And so I also couldn't help but notice that, can you, did you notice, like, sometimes we think about the temple in the Bible, and we're like, oh, the temple, ooh, those people there. But did you catch this 12-year-old boy spends three days at the temple? I mean, do you have, have you ever met a 12-year-old boy that eat everything they see? We had two 12-year-old boys here. We had a, a board meeting on Friday night and Saturday, and we had two 12-year-old boys here hanging out in the gym during uh, Friday night. Um, they walked out with a stack of cookies when we were done. They took a stack, I'm not kidding you, that was that high each, and are just shoveling in cookies. Have you seen 12-year-old boys eat? So someone fed this kid. Someone created a space for him to sleep. Someone made him feel comfortable. It was a warm enough environment that he would ask questions to adults about different things that he, I mean, he was Jesus, so he knew more than you and I, but like, but he's asking like questions and they're listening to him. Like they're, they're creating space for a conversation. They're making space for someone they didn't know, someone younger than them. And they took care of him. And so it leads to like two questions for me, right? Are we making space for people um, to ask questions, to have doubts, to wrestle with things? Are we, are we taking care of people's kids? Right? Would, would a 12-year-old who just got dropped off here, would we, I mean, we hope that doesn't happen, right? We hope that, that doesn't, that's, our culture is a little different than that, but like we hope that doesn't happen. But would we make space by that? See, being warm as a community of faith is not defined by what just happens on a Sunday, but it's defined by the people who make up the collective body of Christ. In fact, it has to go not just to young people, but it has to go across generations. In fact, some of our, um, I'm trying to think how I want to say this. So um, this week, we have a group called, they call themselves Marvelous Monday because they meet mostly on Mondays. I know, it's original. Um, but they met this week, and they meet most weeks, but this week they put together some like care packages um, and gave them out to um, some people who were shut in, either through physical ailments or health or whatever, and they dropped these off all around the community. Um, and so our Marvelous Money group is predominantly seasoned adults. 
I'm using season because they meet on a Monday at 11.30. Most of you non-seasoned people are working. Seasoned also could be retired, but still. Um, but they went to a generation older than them for many of them, and they did this. It was one of the, my favorite things to hear about this week was, um, other than they, like someplace they couldn't get in, but, but they went and dropped off these care packages to say, hey, we love you and we care about you. And so they actually would have done it for a generation older than them. Some, some might have been older than they were dropping off, but that's beside the point. Right? That's what it looks like to create warmth. It's not just towards young people, but warmth is something that has to cross generations. In fact, there's a, one more kind of powerful scene in this story in which we read. And maybe you didn't pick up on it the first time, because I don't know that I would have either. But, but it's a scene at first glance that you want to say Jesus was wrong. Because um, I don't know if you noticed this, but did you notice he took no culpability? He took no blame at all? None. I mean, if my 12-year-old kid doesn't show up for three days, I promise you he's in trouble. He's also not Jesus. But Mary shows up and she looks at him and she says, what did you do to us? Like, how dare you do this? And then he uses this line. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, as it says that Mary and Joseph showed up, and I can't help but think, if I'm Joseph, that would have hurt deeply. Raising this child, I'm feeding this child, I'm teaching him how to work. But if Joseph is half the man we see in the scriptures, my gut is even though it hurt a little bit, Joseph would have been filled with pride. That Jesus was becoming who he was supposed to become. In this story, we see Jesus discover and identify his true identity. He knows his father is the father. See, Jesus knows who he is, and it does and will reshape all of human history. See, today, um, I was thinking about this. How do I say, like, what do I want for my kids? I want nothing more than for my kids, um, at the end of the day, to be more concerned about his business in the world than mine. And if I'm honest, that's probably going to hurt at some point in my life. They're going to want to do something because they think God's calling them to it, and I'm not going to like it, and I'm not going to want it. But at the end of the day, if they're following after Jesus, I hope my response is this. Be more concerned about him than you are about me. And so we see this picture where Jesus, um, he knows his identity. He knows who he is. He knows whose he is. He knows what his purpose is. But for many of us, this is hard, and this is why Warmth matters, because for many of us, we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. N.T. Wright is a a New Testament scholar, and I love, um, he kind of combines Luke 24. um, It's the story of Jesus on on the Maus Road, and he runs into people, and and they're just sad because Jesus has been crucified, and he's been buried, and they don't know, and it's three days later, and so they're walking on the road, and they don't identify him, and it's why he compares these two stories, because Jesus has gone missing for three days. And in both stories, we see Jesus respond in ways that we don't expect. In the first one, right, he, he just says, um, sorry, Mom, I'm not sorry. It's not my fault. Oh, Okay. 
Both, though, contain three days of uncertainty about what's next and what, about what's going to happen. And both seem to imply that Jesus is missing. And so I love this quote. This is what he would title the sermon if he were to preach these two. On finding the Jesus you thought you'd lost. And if that is the message of these two passages, maybe Luke is wanting to tell us something about his gospel as a whole. Maybe he is writing, at one level at least, for people who may have some idea of Jesus, but find he is more elusive than it had imagined. Whether knowing Jesus is elusive or knowing who we are is elusive, the church should be a place where we wrestle with those things. It should be such a warm place that people can find who they are. And here's why. We believe we are our best selves when we find ourselves in Christ. We believe we are our best selves when we find ourselves in Christ. So we think the community of faith should look like this kind of unique place, right? Paul writes about this in Colossians 3, and here's how he describes it. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Right? He's describing what the church should look like, feel like, sound like, be like. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, Gentleness and patience. Okay, that's supposed to be describing us, by the way. Uh, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I'm just going to read that whole line again because I think that one's way harder than almost some of the other stuff. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. How we do this? This is what Paul writes next. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Right, and don't, don't miss this line. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you catch that? Whatever you do, right? We've talked about this before. Everything we do in life is an act of worship. Everything. Now, for some of us, we're like, ooh, can I erase some of that worship? Because that was not good. But it's why... Paul writes to us, hey, like, come to know this Jesus who I have come to know, who reshapes our hearts and our minds. And so these characteristics, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Have you noticed that you've never met a person who's embodied those things that you don't like being around? I've never met a person who I would define as compassionate or kind or humble or gentle or patient or forgiving that I don't want to spend more time with. I've never met that person reason for that. Warmth looks like a people committed to this as a way of life, inviting one another to this. Miroslav Volf, the theologian, he writes these words. He says, we are the church. Doesn't mean we meet occasionally or we cooperate in a current project. 
Instead, we actually become part of one another. This sounds like Paul's exhortation that in the body of Christ, each member belongs to all others. Now, it sounds really like kumbaya, campfire stuff, right? But that's not how life really works. I wish it was sometimes, but what I would say is this. Life is pretty messy. And have you noticed that even good families are messy? And I don't just mean like they spill crumbs. I mean like they make bad decisions. And then they have to wrestle with the consequences. And they work through them together. But good families wrestle through those things together. That's what a good family does. And so messy is not bad. The unwillingness to work through it together, that's what's bad. So I'd say it this way, if you're wrestling with where you fit in the life of the church, the church isn't the place we have to have it all together. The church is the people who love you when you don't have it all together. The church is the place where the people love you enough to help you get it together. And if you think, I don't have the answers, you're right, you don't, and neither do I. But maybe, just maybe, we can begin to wrestle through some of these things. We can walk together towards something new. Um, maybe we can become the kind of place that creates warmth. I love this story about a kid who was in a youth group. And he was in this youth group, and he didn't really believe in God. He had a messed up home life. And he came in saying he was an atheist. And he went to the group, and he argued about everything. And he just pushed back on every question they asked. And he just tried to be that kind of, like, annoying teenage kid. And at the end of it, he went home, and he said to his sister, he's like, that was really good there. They really care about people. And she's like, what? Like, you hated being there? He goes, no, I didn't. In fact, one of the leaders eventually had a conversation with him, and, and what they responded was this. He still wasn't sure about God, but he felt drawn by the community. We want to invite people to belong. We hope they'll eventually believe, but we want them to belong either way. See, this is how the kingdom of God works. It draws people in and invites people in. It always makes space at a table, right? I, I always have this scene in my head. We're going to take communion in a few minutes, but I always have this scene in my head of, of like a big family dinner. And, and I'm thinking this is a fitting illustration today as it's snowing outside. Gosh, I hate snow. Um, like I don't mind skiing, but like I'm going to go there and then go home to like sunshine and 70. It just doesn't work that way, right? Um, but I always have this picture in my head of like this big fireplace, like this big hearth, hearth, depending on who you are and how you say it, this big hearth there and there's a wood-burning fire in the middle and the smell, like if you've ever gone to a Cracker Barrel, that big fireplace with tables, but I just see this big, huge, long table with all the chairs you can imagine and the fireplace stretches as far as it needs to so that you can feel the warmth from that fire. And here is the picture I believe that God invites us to see that he is inviting each of us, every person on the face of this earth, to come and have a seat at this table. Where there's always enough. Where you're always invited. Where there's always a spot for you. Where when you come to this table, you can come and eat. And you never have to leave hungry or empty or scared because you're always welcome and there's a fire that brings you a warmth that makes you feel like this is home. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And when we take communion, it's a reminder that we're invited to this particular table. A table in which we're to feel safety and warmth and hope 
doesn't mean that life is going to be safe. Like, that's not the kind of safety I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of safety that you know who you are. In fact, um, one of the great roles of us as we grow older and as we come to know Jesus more, and whether you're young or not, I don't care, because if you come to know Jesus more, here's one of the realities for us. that We're to help people know Jesus. And so I want to say it this way. It's not my quote, but I loved it. Faith is not passed down, it's passed around. Faith is not passed down, it's passed around. So at that big table, it is passing to one person next to you and saying, hey, this is for you as well. Welcome, eat, partake. You're invited. This is for you. So let's pass it on to one another. So I love this quote um, from the book Growing Young. It's a young guy named Titus. He's he's 19 years old, and here's what he wrote. So I'm going to read it as if I'm a 19-year-old reading this. So these are his words, literally quoted. Talking about his church. Some of our older couples are, like, in their 70s. And the first time or two that someone new comes to worship, these older couples will invite them over to their house for Sunday dinner. It's a homemade dinner. And so the young people will go and tell their friends, hey, come to this church. You know what? There are people who invite you over for dinner. Some of you are, like, in your 70s. Invite some people over for dinner. Some of you are in your 40s. Still invite some people over for dinner. Some of you are younger than going, please invite me over for dinner. But what might happen if you and I were committed to living as a warm community of faith? Inviting people in and saying that, that hey, we, we believe that God loves you and I enough that somehow he invites us to know him. He invites us to his table. He says, you are welcome. You are invited to come and be a part. You are invited to come and know the one who died for you. You are invited. And because of my son, Jesus, you can come to know who your father is. You can know this. That in my family, at my table, there's always space for you. There's a place in which you will feel warm and invited. I don't want you, but I desperately want to be a part of a community of faith that is committed to living that way. That we might really come to know the depth of God's love. We might embrace that as our own and then share that with others. And that really is the message that Jesus comes to share. That's why the most quoted passage probably in the New Testament is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. The kind of life that that heaven enters into here and now. Pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you in these moments and we know that we just wrestle with so many things in life. But may we not wrestle with whether we were invited to your table to know your grace and your love and your mercy. And may those things become the defining characteristics of our lives. That we're so wrapped up in your love. It will permeate every aspect of who we are and it will be what others would see when they come to know us. May we recognize as we have sung these words, there's no no thing that heaven can't heal. May we recognize that whatever burdens or wounds or things we carry, that your grace is sufficient for us. And so may we be the kind of people who live that way. I pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.